Episode 11, one half of a conclusion. From early on in his career, Dylan generated referential, often reverential songs, with David Bowie and Joan Byers competing for the best known, if not the best. Every decade deserves and invariably gets one or more songs inspired by and about Bob Dylan. Woody Guthrie was late to the sub-genre of salute songs, with the notable exception of the first and the most famous. Song to Woody was recorded in November 1961, only six months after Cisco Houston died. Here's to the hearts and the hands of the men that come with the dust and are gone with the wind. And of course that includes Houston, whose death triggered a succession of tribute songs from Greenwich Village veterans like Peter Lafargue and Tom Paxton. Given that Bowie's song for Bob Dylan echoes song to Woody, what we have here is a Venn diagram of folk revival references. Is it any wonder that Dylan's first composition is still subject to serial deconstruction? Fast forward to the 1990s and into the present century, and successive Guthrie-themed anthems can be clearly located in time and political context. In the mid-90s, Steve Earle's early promise as a singer-songwriter and political activist was a distant memory. Turning his back on alcohol and drugs, he again garnered critical acclaim with albums like El Corazon. The much-covered opening track, Christmas in Washington, is Woody Guthrie for Generation X. Although written and recorded before Bill Clinton's relationship with Monica Lewinsky became public knowledge, the irony of the song's opening stanza was evident by the time El Corazon was released in 1997. Republicans crowing, there'll be no more FDRs. Griel Marcus brutally dismissed Steve Earle's putrid Where Have All the Lefties Gone Lament, and that was before he heard Joan Byers' cover. Marcus is way too hard on Earl, but the song does give the impression, if unintentionally, that its writer is not merely following in the footsteps of Cisco and Woody. One day he'll be up on the podium alongside them. Woody Guthrie was the late Jimmy Lefebvre's heartfelt but frankly turgid tribute to a man he was all but obsessed with in the last 20 years of his life. It appeared on the adopted Oki's 2001 album, Texoma. Woodrow was a 2005 elegy recorded by Tom Russell. A double eulogist, his Dylan homage Masabi standing out in a crowded field. The Guthrie tribute is a rare play-again track on Russell's overambitious concept album, Hot Walker, a Waits-style beat-inspired lament for an alternative and artistically vibrant Los Angeles, a city exciting to grow up in but sadly long gone. The song pulls no punches, Ray, the later life of a one-time L.A. hero, broken in body but not in spirit. Oh, Mrs Guthrie, look what they've done to your brown-eyed baby now. It's a post-9-11 warning of what lies ahead in a land of dread and fear, where the sons and daughters of Woodrow Wilson Guthrie are quickly silenced when they challenge the abuse of state power and they speak out in defence of civil liberties. With... The words of Woody Guthrie ringing in my head, Jay Farrer anticipated imminent environmental disaster on Bandages and Scars, the opening track of another album from 2005, Son Vault's suitably titled Okamar and the Melody of Riot. However inspiring, Guthrie was clearly no role model, as Farrer's lyrics were no less dense and demanding than usual, channelling several other songwriters from Lead Belly to Gil Scott Heron. Farrer's obsession with Guthrie 
first singled on Uncle Tupelo's acoustic album, March 16, 20, 1992, extends to a custom guitar built from pieces of wood he picked up in Okamar, the town to which he returned in 2018 to record Half of Union, Son Volt's most explicitly political album. Not even in their worst nightmares could Tom Russell and Jay Farrer anticipate the dysfunctional, demoralised state of the Union a dozen years down the track. On Rai Kuda's The Prodigal Son, Jesus and Woody voices the plea of a world-weary saviour that Guthrie should drag out your Oklahoma poetry because it looks like the war is on. Donald Trump is never mentioned by name, but when Jesus sees they're starting up their engine of hate, it's clear who the Son of Man has in mind. In Kuda's song, Jesus looks up to Guthrie, not the other way round. Deity and man are fellow dreamers and both like sinners, better than fascists. This, it suggests, leaves the latter beyond forgiveness and redemption, and thus fair game. Here, in its own quiet way, is a call to arms. It's also an echo of Earl's 20 years earlier, with Christmas in Washington similarly assuming that Woody Guthrie sits at the Lord's right hand. Why can't the two of them come back down and purge the nation of its malcontents? On the prodigal son's inner sleeve... Raikuda's lyrics for Jesus and Woody, with their seamless incorporation of Guthrie song titles, are superimposed over an image of the Ash Recording 78 of Guthrie's Jesus Christ. Woody Guthrie's 1940 Jesus robs the rich to feed the poor, just like Jesse James, with whom he shares the same tune, and Pretty Boy Floyd. This is an outlaw mythology where God and gunmen share moral equivalents. As D.A. Carpenter points out, Guthrie was happy to call himself a prophet singer and be compared with Jesus, a hard-working man and brave. Bob Dylan, on the other hand, shunned the collectivist outlaw tradition mythologised in the Dust Bowl ballads. In 1970, Dylan told Robert Shelton that one reason he kept a low profile was that being noticed can be a burden. Jesus got himself crucified because he got himself noticed. When, as the evening performance ended on the 20th of January 1968, younger members of the audience chanted, We want Dylan! Did they seriously believe he would step out from behind the curtain to provide a solitary encore? What did they expect him to sing? Song to Woody? Such a scenario was inconceivable. Seeger... Leventhal and the Guthrie family would have quickly stamped on any subversion of a genuinely collective enterprise. Dylan himself would have been appalled at the notion that he should place himself above all the other artists. The old guard, disenchanted and disappointed since Newport 65, if not before, had welcomed their renegade messiah back into the fold. All were guided by Pete Seeger's response, presumably unaware that he had already been won over by John Wesley Harding. Ever the purist, Seeger hated all the trappings of rock and roll, and the crackers made only modest concessions to the unspoken assumption that everyone would play acoustic. Yet, anecdotal evidence suggests Seeger was quickly won round once Dylan and his sidemen launched into their afternoon set, and in the evening he knew what to expect. Unlike a number of other artists, Dylan and his band didn't spend time on stage rehearsing ahead of the first show, 
which prompts the question as to whether Seeger, Leventhal, Gear, and their fellow organisers saw the set list in advance. When did they realise that Dylan had selected a song that was toxic in 1948 and was even more so 20 years later? It's unlikely that they only found out at the moment that he launched into Dear Mrs Roosevelt, but if they did have advance notice, then the obvious question is whether at any stage Dylan was asked what precisely he intended to sing. For over 20 years, Pete Seeger had time and again demonstrated the strength of his beliefs. Few doubted his courage, yet even Seeger must have balked at Dylan's choice of Dear Mrs Roosevelt, with its derogatory remark about Churchill and flattering reference to a dictator most Americans twinned with Hitler as an embodiment of evil. Hardly any organisers and performers backstage at Carnegie Hall would have known of Woody's campaign song from almost 20 years earlier. Perhaps only Howie Richmond and Will Gear could have shared Seeger's alarm that a convivial celebration of their old comrade might be adversely affected by an unanticipated echo of popular front politics. Was this Woody loudly proclaiming an unrepentant message about Stalin from beyond the grave? Harold Leventhal had known Bob Dylan since he was a kid fresh off the bus and would have had no hesitation in telling him what was and was not unacceptable. Yet almost certainly he had no need. Dylan knew full well which verses were contentious and therefore redundant. In any case, he wanted a song that was short, punchy and rocked. Levon Helm wasn't going to tolerate a 14-verse panegyric especially one which halfway through declared Joe Stalin to be a regular guy. Nevertheless, the matinee performance must have seen the organisers unsure as to how Dylan would cover a composition so fixed in the politics of its time. Backstage, the relief must have been palpable as both singer and band rushed towards their joyous climax in non-partisan fashion, eulogising the nation's greatest war leader since Lincoln. Anyone hearing the song for the first time, and that constituted almost everyone present at each of the concerts, naturally assumed the lyrics were complete. The presumption would be that Guthrie had written Dear Mrs Roosevelt while in the army as an early mark of respect for the passing of a fine man. Why would anyone not in the know conceive of any alternative scenario? When the concert recording appeared in 1972, a wider audience would have heard Guthrie's farewell to the recently deceased FDR and assumed that Bob Dylan was singing every verse. Dylan's self-censorship wasn't duplicitous. He had no idea that, having resurrected one of Woody Guthrie's most obscure songs, almost everyone who heard it would assume that this was a definitive interpretation. The song was in the public domain and no one was stopping any other artist from performing the complete version. It never occurred to the California singer Joel Raphael or anyone else interested in Dear Mrs Roosevelt to check to see if there were any other verses. No one knew better than Bob Dylan that folk songs are shapeshifters with no definitive version. Dylan, like Guthrie, has always worked within a timeless tradition of reworking old songs, mapping fresh lyrics onto well-established tunes or simply reshaping an established narrative. Performers do this all the time, not least when singing Woody Guthrie compositions. Guthrie repeatedly reshaped his own songs, rewording, omitting or adding lyrics. 
There are, for example, multiple versions of Pretty Boy Floyd. Its hero mythologised by Guthrie as a much maligned Robin Hood of the Dust Bowl, not a suspiciously psychotic bank robber with a penchant for shooting G-men. The same, of course, is true for Dylan. His relentless reinterpretation far exceeds Guthrie's readiness to rework the old favourites. At the same time, Dylan has always had his own unique take on Woody Guthrie. His studio version of Pretty Boy Floyd is typical in the way that it respects the original while at the same time reinventing itself as a Bob Dylan song. In January 1968, Dylan was suitably respectful of Dear Mrs Roosevelt, but the lyrics were as open to radical rearrangement as the music. Thus it's hard to imagine Dylan agonising over the verses cut from Guthrie's pro-Soviet take on a fast-descending Iron Curtain. There was no emotional investment, unlike his near obsession with the lifetime incarceration of the black middleweight boxer, Reuben Hurricane Carter. In the mid-70s, Dylan was convinced Carter had been framed for murder, and at the heart of the Rolling Thunder Review was a high-profile campaign to secure the boxer's retrial and release. Outside the United States, scarcely anyone would have known about Carter's supposed plight had Dylan and New York polymath Jacques Levy not written Hurricane, the opening track of the December 1975 album Desire. Played at every gig on the first half of the Rolling Thunder tour, the song was then dropped from Dylan's setlist. In Mobile on the 26th of April 1976, he informed disappointed fans that Hurricane's out now, we don't have to sing that no more. The song has never again featured in a Bob Dylan concert. Yet Hurricane remains Desire's standout track, thanks mainly to Scarlett Rivera's scorching violin breaks. As Lester Bangs pointed out, in a searing indictment of Dylan's periodic attempts to revive his persona as a protest singer, the performance is so drivingly persuasive because the music is so good. For all the pleading and the passion, this was a story that never rang true, even before it emerged that Dylan's version of events, from Carter's world championship potential through to his movements in Patterson, New Jersey, on the night of a triple killing in June 1966, was deeply flawed. Hurricane highlights Dylan's readiness to reshape a song if expedient, just as he did with Dear Mrs Roosevelt seven years earlier. He and Levy wrote and recorded Hurricane in July 1975, Two months later, the planned single was premiered at a TV recording in Chicago of a public service broadcasting tribute to John Hammond, Columbia's legendary producer of Dylan, Aretha Franklin, Bruce Springsteen, et al. By that time, the original lyrics had already been changed as a consequence of the record label fearing libel suits from lawyers representing the petty criminals named by Dylan and Levy as having falsely testified that Carter was at the murder scene. The finer points of the Carter case are not pertinent here. The pertinence lies in Dylan's willingness to rewrite his saga on the insistence of Columbia's in-house attorneys, after which he re-recorded the song ahead of the Rolling Thunder Review's New England debut. He'd done something similar 12 years earlier when tweaking the lyrics of The Lonesome Death of Hattie Carroll for his third album, albeit with the original version still sung live. Words can, of course, be deceptive, especially when incomplete. And, as we've seen, a straight reading of Dear Mrs Roosevelt obscures the real date of its composition nearly three years later. 
Equally false is the impression conveyed by the lyrics, whether wholly or in part, that Woody Guthrie's admiration for FDR was unqualified. His feelings towards Roosevelt ebbed and flowed in a relationship best described as complex and contradictory. Woodrow Wilson Guthrie never met Franklin Delano Roosevelt, but if he had, then the president would have revealed a disarming familiarity with his work. Courtesy of the FBI, but also thanks to a first lady supportive of America's folk revival first time around. Another 15 years would pass before that revival truly blossomed, by which time Guthrie was a chronic invalid, a tragedy and a cruel irony. Although Huntington's disease was as yet unsuspected, Guthrie was already ill when he composed Dear Mrs Roosevelt. It's one of his final songs, complete with lyrics and melody. Indeed, it may well be Woody's last complete song. Birds and Buyers' favourite, Deportee, Plain Wreck at Los Gatos, also written in January 1948, is often cited as the last Woody Guthrie composition. It was, in fact, written as verse to ensure the anonymous fruit pickers killed in a Southern Californian air crash would never be forgotten. Guthrie gave the anonymous Mexicans imaginary names. On stage, Woody would chant the poem, with his guitar providing a percussive accompaniment. Thus, the tune by which Deportee is known today dates from a decade later, courtesy of a schoolteacher called Martin Hoffman. Dear Mrs Roosevelt, on the other hand, was always meant to be sung, ideally in front of a large audience, many of whom would join in on the chorus. There was no place for poetry when out on the campaign trail in the fall of 1948. Dear Mrs Roosevelt has to be seen in the context of disillusion with the path being pursued by the Democratic Party and Wallace's consequent decision to run in November 1948 as a genuinely radical alternative. But its composition was not solely a consequence of anti-Truman myth-making. Woody Guthrie had many faults, but hypocrisy and cynical manipulation of popular sentiment are never going to rank high on the charge sheet. On the one hand, his roughly hewn Marxist worldview, proletarian or populist, saw him dismiss FDR as the acceptable face of liberal capitalism, blanching at the prospect of systematically transforming depression-wracked America. Here was a harsh, hostile view of the president, articulated via a crude, homespun philosophy reflective of the Communist Party's late 30s disenchantment with the New Deal and its isolationist opposition to rearmament pre-Pearl Harbour. Yet, at the same time, Guthrie refused to dismiss tangible evidence of New Deal initiatives creating jobs, raising living standards and enhancing working men and women's quality of life. The 26 songs written for the Bonneville Power Administration in May 1941 together constitute a powerful, poetic and in their own way deeply moving testimony to the transformative effects of the New Deal's most ambitious initiatives. Dear Mrs Roosevelt, Guthrie's last great political anthem was rooted in an acknowledgement, however begrudging, that here was a president who, by dint of his executive authority, had facilitated the federal state's positive impact upon individual lives. The provision of work, whether that be painting murals or building dams, restored pride and dignity to millions of men and women brought to their knees by an economic whirlwind. In the months and years following Roosevelt's death, Guthrie was not alone in refashioning the late president as a more liberal, left-leaning and interventionist statesman than in 1948.
than had in fact been the case. FDR became in effect the lost leader whose progressive legacy was being betrayed by someone accidentally placed in the White House as a consequence of Wallace's ill-treatment at the Democrats' 1944 National Convention. Eleanor Roosevelt, opposed to Truman's vice presidential nomination in 1944, encouraged New Deal nostalgists in 1946-1947, but never at the expense of party loyalty. Like many communist fellow travellers observing the Democratic Party from outside, Guthrie failed to appreciate the power of the party machine that FDR himself had forged across the interwar period. Written in January 1948 to mark Henry Wallace's final break from the Democrats, Dear Mrs Roosevelt hailed a late president implicitly betrayed by his own party. For many radicals, it was the Truman administration's betrayal of FDR's progressive legacy which now forced former loyalists like Wallace to throw down the gauntlet, however reluctantly. Here was a now former Democrat, still faithful to his dead leader's vision of a prosperous, peace-loving nation. This heroic narrative ignored the inconvenient fact that Wallace had for much of his life been a registered Republican, switching allegiance only after Roosevelt appointed him Secretary for Agriculture. It also disguised the fact that the quasi-communist Guthrie had no illusions about Wallace, campaigning for him in 1948 only because no one else seemed capable of mounting a serious challenge to the anti-Soviet posturing of both main parties. Guthrie's qualified endorsement of Wallace was an obvious political miscalculation, but it didn't necessarily appear so at the time. Woody Guthrie was by no means alone in believing the United States was ripe for change. The 1948 presidential election proved a harsh reality check, and yet in terms of popular culture, this marked a key moment for folk music as it lodged itself in the national psyche. Guthrie may have viewed campaigning for Wallace as a bitter experience, but the Lomax brothers and sister and Pete Seeger had the prescience to see the rallies and hootnannies as a springboard for establishing a fresh audience among liberal America's young, educated middle class. It was that same generation, and more especially their offspring, who would come to see Guthrie as a powerful presence in the nation's musical heritage and who enthusiastically embraced Bob Dylan's pretensions to be his natural successor. <laughs>